Welcome to the February 4th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a study that describes the pathogenic relevance of retinoic acid-responsive CD8-positive T-cells in gastrointestinal graft-versus-host disease. Learn more about how storage-induced disturbances of platelets is linked to changes in the number and sphingolipid content of platelet extracellular vesicles, which predispose to transfusion-related acute lung injury. And lastly, review the findings of a Phase two study of Venetoclax plus RCHOP as first-line treatment for patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Our first topic is a study entitled, Retinoic Acid-Responsive CD8 Effector T-Cells Are Selectively Increased in IL-23-Rich Tissue in Gastrointestinal GVHD, by Jennifer Ball and Jeff Davies from Queen Mary University of London and their colleagues from the United Kingdom. By way of background, gastrointestinal graft-versus-host disease, or GIGVHD, remains a major barrier in allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Acute GVHD is mediated by alloreactive donor T-cells that recognize and destroy healthy recipient tissues, resulting in significant morbidity and mortality after transplant. A substantial number of patients do not respond to frontline treatment with steroids, and effective second-line therapeutic options remain limited. A better understanding of the tissue-specific pathways involved in the differentiation, expansion, and migration of alloreactive donor T-cells that mediate GIGVHD may permit improved methods to prevent or treat this complication. Retinoic acid, or RA, a metabolite of vitamin A, is a ligand for the nuclear RA receptors alpha, beta, and gamma that dimerize with retinoid X receptors at RA response element sites to recruit coactivator proteins and promote gene transcription. The interaction of RA with its receptor RAR-alpha increases T-cell homing capacity to the GI tract. While RA potentiates GI-GVHD in mice via alloreactive T-cells expressing RAR-alpha, the role of RA-responsive cells in human GI-GVHD remains undefined. Here, the authors used conventional and novel sequential immunostaining and flow cytometry to scrutinize RA-responsive T-cells in tissues and blood of allotransplant patients and characterize the impact of RA on human T-cell alloresponses. Expression of RAR-alpha by human mononuclear cells was increased after RA exposure. RAR-alpha-positive mononuclear cells were increased in GI-GVHD tissue, contained more cellular RA binding proteins, localized with tissue damage, and correlated with GVHD severity and mortality. Sequential immunostaining confirmed the presence of a population of CD8-positive T-cells co-expressing RAR-alpha, the effector T-cell transcription factor T-bet, and the interleukin-23 receptor. These cells were increased in GI but not skin GVHD-affected tissue, and were also selectively expanded in GI-GVHD patient blood. Finally, Functional approaches demonstrated RA predominantly increased alloreactive GI-tropic RAR-alpha CD8-positive effector T-cells with the aforementioned triple-positive phenotype. Interleukin-23-rich conditions potentiated this effect, 
by selectively increasing beta-7 integrin expression on CD8 effector T-cells and reducing CD4 T-cells with a regulatory cell phenotype. In conclusion, Ball and colleagues identified RA-responsive T-cells that are selectively increased at sites of GIGVHD tissue damage in humans in the context of increased IL-23 and correlate with disease severity and mortality. Furthermore, these cells were characterized as predominantly CD8 effector T-cells expressing high levels of RAR-alpha, T-bet, and the IL-23 receptor. The authors point out that selective targeting of this RA-responsive CD8 effector T-cell population could provide a new strategy to prevent or treat GIGVHD. In their accompanying commentary, John Kareth and Roman Shapiro from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute submit that while the study provides novel insight and a reasonable rationale for investigating RA-responsive triple-positive CD8-positive T-cells, and RA-mediated signaling as targets for therapeutic intervention in GI-acute GVHD, it remains to be determined if this would be a viable therapeutic strategy. For example, targeting RAR-alpha may not be optimal in the context of GI-GVHD, as RA also has an important role in maintaining GI mucosal integrity, and vitamin A deprivation in transplanted mice can redirect GVHD to other target organs. They suggest additional approaches for suppressing the intestinal epithelial stem cell injury induced by the subcrypt CD8-positive T-cell subset. These include therapeutics like vetalizumab that interdict the GI tropism of T-cells and blockade of IL-23 signaling with ustekinumab. Our next topic is a manuscript entitled Platelet Extracellular Vesicles Mediate Transfusion-Related Acute Lung Injury by Imbalancing the Sphingolipid Rheostat by Mark McVeigh from St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Ontario, Wolfgang Kubler from Charity Universitats Medicine in Berlin, Germany, and their colleagues. While blood transfusions are frequently life-saving interventions, trolley, or transfusion-related acute lung injury, is a hazardous transfusion complication with an associated mortality of 5 to 15%. It is clinically defined as a new onset of hypoxemic bilateral lung injury within six hours of transfusion of plasma containing blood products and is characterized by lung inflammation and endothelial barrier failure. Trolley has an incidence varying from 1 in 10,000 transfusions to greater than 1 in 100 transfusions in critically ill patients. Trolley is mediated by transfusion of pathogenic donor antibodies and or biologic response modifiers from blood products. While mitigation strategies, such as deferring female plasma, have reduced the incidence of antibody-mediated trolley, the mechanisms of antibody-independent trolley remain poorly understood, making it challenging to identify prevention strategies. The authors previously showed in a murine model that the transfusion of five-day stored but not fresh that is, one-day stored pools of platelets, cause trolley via ceramide-mediated endothelial barrier dysfunction. In this model, acid sphingomyelinase, the predominant ceramide-producing enzyme in platelets, was essential for donor platelets to elicit trolley. This model corroborates human and preclinical data showing ceramide accumulation during platelet storage and ceramide-induced lung endothelial barrier failure. Ceramide causes lung injury when unopposed by sphingosine-1-phosphate, or S1P, a counter-regulatory sphingolipid which promotes barrier integrity. 
S1P decreases while ceramide accumulates in human platelets during storage. This imbalance in the ratio of ceramide versus S1P, which has been referred to as the sphingolipid rheostat, has emerged as a possible explanation for stored platelet-induced trolley. As biological ceramides are hydrophobic, extracellular vesicles, or EVs, may be required to shuttle these sphingolipids from platelets to endothelial cells. In addition, EV formation in turn requires ceramide. The authors hypothesized that ceramide-dependent EV formation from stored platelets and EV-dependent sphingolipid shuttling induce trolley. In their analysis, the investigators enumerated EVs and their sphingolipid content during storage of murine platelets and assessed lung injury in vivo and endothelial barrier integrity in vitro. The authors found that day-5 stored EVs were more abundant, had higher long-chain ceramide, and lower S1P content than day-1 stored EVs. Transfusion of day-5, but not day-1 stored EVs, induced characteristic signs of lung injury in vivo and endothelial barrier disruption in vitro. Inhibition or supplementation of ceramide-forming sphingomyelinase reduced or enhanced the formation of EVs respectively, but did not alter injuriousness per individual EV. Barrier failure was attenuated when EVs were abundant in, or supplemented with, S1P. Stored human platelet day 4 EVs were numerous compared with day 2 EVs, contained more long-chain ceramide and less S1P, and caused more endothelial cell barrier leak. Taken together, these data corroborate the hypothesis that with prolonged storage, platelet-derived EVs increase in number and become more injurious. These results also provide therapeutic avenues for mitigating trolley. Strategies include blockade of sphingomyelinase, which inhibits ceramide formation, EV elimination, supplementation of S1P during platelet storage, and washing of stored platelets. Despite their findings, the authors acknowledged three primary limitations of their study. These include the fact that a mouse model was used for functional proof of concept, which is not feasible in human trials, even though key storage time-dependent characteristics, such as enhanced EV release and altered sphingolipid composition, could be replicated in human platelets. Second, they tested pooled plasma platelets, meaning that the findings could not be directly extrapolated to other clinical platelet products. And lastly, they did not provide direct proof for the notion that the higher long-chain ceramide content directly contributes to the higher injuriousness of day-5 EVs. In their accompanying commentary, Simon Cleary and Mark Looney from University of California, San Francisco, indicate that further conceptual advances are needed to answer questions such as how ceramides lead to endothelial barrier disruption in vivo. Since unlike S1P, Ceramides do not appear to signal through classical receptor-ligand interactions, but instead relay information through modulating the assembly of lipid rafts. They also note that given the effects from stored platelets identified in this study, it is likely that the production of platelet EVs and the balance of their sphingolipid cargo may also have other important roles beyond transfusion biology. Our final topic today is a report on the Cavalli trial entitled A Phase II Study of Venetoclax Plus RCHOP as First-Line Treatment for Patients with Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma, conducted by Frank Morchauser from the Université de Lille in France, Andrew Zelenitz from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and colleagues.
The prognosis of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, has considerably improved with the addition of rituximab to cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, vincristine, and prednisone, or RCHOP, chemotherapy. Here, the authors demonstrate in their Phase two study that the addition of venetoclax, a selective and potent inhibitor of BCL2, to RCHOP therapy has the potential to improve the outcome of BCL2 overexpressing DLBCL patients, despite a higher incidence of side effects. Beyond cell of origin effects and adjustment for clinicopathologic risk factors, DLBCL subgroups defined by molecular biomarkers also provide independent prognostic value. Specifically, overexpression of BCL2 confers resistance to the pro-apoptotic activities of CHOP chemotherapy in the first-line setting and is associated with inferior outcome, identifying a patient population with an unmet need. Concurrent overexpression of BCL2 and MYC proteins is a feature associated with adverse outcomes. Additionally, patients with rearrangement of MYC and BCL2, a high-grade B-cell lymphoma, formerly referred to as double-hit lymphoma, have a particularly poor prognosis with RCHOP. Venetoclax has shown promising clinical activity in a range of non-Hodgkin lymphoma subtypes. The prior Cavalli Phase 1b study reported increased rates of grade 3-4 hematologic adverse events, consistent with other studies using novel targeted agents combined with chemotherapy. In this small patient population of 24 patients, the myelosuppressive effects of venetoclax plus RCHOP were manageable with granulocyte colony-stimulating factor prophylaxis, supportive measures, and dose modifications or delays. During Phase 1b, the maximum tolerated dose of venetoclax plus RCHOP was not reached, and the recommended Phase 2 dose for the combination was a non-continuous dosing schedule of venetoclax 800 mg on days 4 through 10 of cycle 1 and on days 1 through 10 of cycles 2 through 8. In the current Phase 2 Cavalli study, the authors report on the efficacy and safety of venetoclax plus RCHOP in an expanded population of 206 patients with previously untreated DLBCL. Study patients received venetoclax 800 mg on the aforementioned Phase 1b schedule. Rituximab was administered on day 1 of cycles 1 to 8. Standard CHOP was given for 6 to 8 21-day cycles. Eligible patients were greater than or equal to 18 years of age with previously untreated CD20-positive DLBCL, an ECOG performance status of 0 to 2, an international prognostic index score of 2 to 5, and adequate hematologic function. The primary efficacy endpoint was PET-complete response, assessed by an independent review committee, according to modified Lugano 2014 criteria, for the intention to treat and pre-specified biomarker-driven populations. These include BCL2, IHC-positive and negative patients, double-expressor and double-hit lymphomas, and DLBCL according to cell-of-origin subtype. Safety endpoints included frequency and severity of adverse events. Secondary endpoints included progression-free survival and overall survival. Results with venetoclax RCHOP were compared to covariate-adjusted RCHOP controls from the Goya study which was a randomized phase 3 study of abinutuzumab or rituximab plus CHOP in patients with previously untreated diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This study was felt to be an appropriate contemporary benchmark for safety and efficacy. Chemotherapy dose intensity was similar between Cavalli and Goya. PET complete response rates at the end of treatment were 69% overall, 
64% in the BCL2 IHC positive population, and 66% in the double expressor lymphoma subgroup. These rates are similar to RCHOP in the Goya cohort. Independent review committee-based overall response assessments in Cavalli were similar to the matched Goya control group in the overall population, 83% versus 80%, but was numerically higher in Cavalli than Goya in patients with BCL2 IHC positive disease, 83% versus 77%, and in the double expressor lymphoma subgroup, 84% versus 77%, with a median follow-up 32.3 months. Trends were observed for improved progression-free survival for venetoclax plus RCHOP in the overall population and BCL2 IHC-positive subgroups versus the Goya RCHOP controls. Despite a higher incidence of grade 3-4 hematologic adverse events, treatment-related mortality was not increased. In conclusion, these Cavalli Phase II data indicate that the addition of venetoclax to RCHOP in the frontline DLBCL setting demonstrates increased but manageable myelosuppression and a signal for improved efficacy in high-risk BCL2 IHC-positive subgroups. In the accompanying commentary, Umberto Vitolo and Mattia Novo, from the Candiolo Cancer Institute in Torino, Italy, indicate that the study's results open a window for future strategies to improve RCHOP results, particularly if patients are better selected for therapies based on disease biomarkers. They do note several study limitations, including the non-randomized design and the lack of differences in rates of CR by PET, the primary study endpoint. However, the differences in progression-free survival for BCL2-positive patients is compelling enough to merit further studies with this combination therapy. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.